Hello everyone and thank you for joining us for episode 31 of Infraction. I'm Nadia. And I'm Sally. And we're back. Thank you so much for your patience whilst we took a teeny tiny week off. Um, How are you, Sal? How's new house life? It's lovely. feel like I'm living in a hotel. (laughs) It is like a hotel. It's amazing. (laughs) Um, So today's case, we are back in England. I haven't done a British case in a while. So today I thought I would focus on a case from here in England in a place called Bristol. So I don't really know how I'd describe Bristol to our international listener, Sal. I'd say it's quite fun and quirky. I mean, I've really only ever been in there on a night out, I think, when we went to go visit our friend at uni. But, I mean, how would you describe it? Yeah, it's not that far from London, so it's probably got a a slightly similar feel to it. It's very up and coming. Um, Well, I should say it's come up, to be honest. Um, But, yeah, very trendy. Quite a lot of young people that live there. Really nice waterside. Yeah, very cool city. Yeah, it's a really, really nice area. So the girl at the centre of today's episode is 16-year-old Becky Marie Watts. Becky was born to her parents, Darren Goldsworthy and Tanya Watts, on the 3rd of June 1998 in Bristol. Although at the time of her birth, her parents' relationship was on the rocks, their love for Becky never wavered. Darren and Tanya met when Darren was 29 and Tanya had been 22. Their relationship had started quickly and the couple soon moved in with each other. On the 19th of February 1995, their first child, Danny, was born. Darren loved being a dad to Danny, but between working long hours as an engineer and coming home to dote on his son, Darren spent less and less time with Tanya, and soon cracks in their relationship started to appear. Darren moved out of the flat but continued to see his son on the weekends. During this time, Tanya and Darren did have a few intimate encounters, but despite this, when Tanya said she was pregnant again, Darren didn't believe the baby was his. On the 3rd of June 1998, Darren got a call saying that Tanya had given birth to a baby girl. He went to the hospital to take his son to meet his new sister. When Darren looked down at the cot with baby Becky sleeping in it, he said he instantly fell in love with her. Tanya and Darren's relationship went back to the way it had been before Becky was born. They lived separately, but Darren took Danny and Becky on the weekends. Just six months after Becky was born, Darren was out walking down his local high street when he bumped into a woman named Angie May. Angie was someone Darren had known when he was younger and he'd always fancied her. Unfortunately, when they were younger, Angie had gotten into a relationship before Darren had asked her out and she'd soon fallen pregnant with her new partner. She'd had a son who she named Nathan. Darren stopped and spoke to Angie for a while when he saw her in the street and he was gutted to find out that she was still with her partner. He left feeling a bit downtrodden. He'd still had the sparks he'd had when he was younger when he'd seen her again. Not all hope was lost, however, as just a few short months later, Darren bumped into Angie again, and this time she revealed that her relationship was on the rocks. Their relationship soon ended, and Darren and Angie immediately started seeing each other. Within months, they'd moved in with each other. At the time they moved in with each other, Angie's son Nathan was around 12 years old. For reasons that are a bit unclear, Nathan didn't live with either Angie or his own father during the week, but instead lived with Angie's mum. At the weekends, however, Nathan would stay with his mum Angie and Darren, and of course, on these weekends, Darren had his children, Danny and Becky, staying over too. Danny and Nathan got on really well, despite their eight-year age gap. It was exciting for Danny to have an older stepbrother, and he thought it was incredibly cool that someone of big old age of 12 wanted to play with a small four-year-old like him. By this time, Becky was just two years old, and so she spent most of her weekends with Angie and Darren, whilst Danny and Nathan would play their games. The couple shortly moved out of Angie's home and moved into their own home in the St George's area. 
They still had the children on weekends, but soon Darren started to see changes in Becky and Danny's behaviour. They became subdued every time he took them home to their mothers. Things got even more concerning in September of 2001, when Danny was five and Becky was three. A social worker turned up at Darren's house and told Darren and Angie that both Danny and Becky had been taken into care because social services had deemed that they weren't being taken care of properly by their mother. Darren told social services that he wanted the children to live with him, but unfortunately it wasn't as simple as that. Darren would still be able to see them on the weekends as normal and he would have the chance to apply for custody, but social services wouldn't just be able to hand them over to him. Becky and Danny would unfortunately have to live with a foster family until then. After many arduous months of meetings with lawyers and social services and having to undertake parenting classes and even drug and alcohol tests, Darren and Angie were granted an interim care order for Danny and Becky to live with them full-time until there was a final hearing. A year later, in March 2002, they were finally granted a residence order, which essentially means they were granted custody of both the children and Danny and Becky would live with them full-time. That's crazy, isn't it, that it's that difficult for a dad to have custody of his own children? Yeah, it is, but I think it's just that the system is very flawed, but I just think it's so difficult for them to change anything at the moment. I mean, this was, what, in 2001, 2002? Um, so, yeah, it's still the same as it is, and it is literally still the same now in 2020. And I suppose, really, it is there as, like, a safeguarding measure to stop it, but it shouldn't be an automatic right actually that the other parent can just have the children because if it was it'd be very hard to police that they might not necessarily be fit parents but just surprises me that it's quite that long but yeah I think the way that they probably look at it is that you know seeing and having your children on just the weekends is very different to them living with you full time so I think they need to do all the assessments and stuff just to make sure that actually the children are going with someone who can take care of them full time opposed to just on the weekends and stuff like that but I do know what you're saying and I think for Darren it was specifically really really hard because you know he loved them so much and he was a good dad and but you know they weren't just going to take his word for gospel but I mean Angie as well to be fair to her they put her through quite a strenuous time they made her take parenting classes and things like that despite her having um, her own child who she'd obviously been raising um Mm. so yeah both of them they had to go under um they had to undergo very strenuous tests but I mean it all worked out because they did get custody in the end Mm. So during this time, Nathan, who was Angie's son, was now 14 years old. He was still living at his nan's house, but he did come home and visit the family of four most weekends. He still got on well with Danny, but he didn't like Becky very much. He found her to be loud and annoying, although Darren and Angie explained to Nathan that Becky was just a baby and she'd soon grow out of her loud phase. Becky was only three and a half years old, and therefore she was clueless as to Nathan's disdain towards her. She liked seeing him and being around him, So much so that one day when the family drove up to collect Nathan for the weekend, Becky uttered her first word when she saw him come out of the house, her first word being Nathan. As she got slightly older, Becky struggled to understand the blended family she had. She would shout at Danny and say things like, my mum's better than your mum, not understanding that Angie wasn't her birth mother and that Danny's mother Tanya was also hers. She so desperately wanted Angie to be her mum that she would ask Angie things like, Was it painful when I came out of your tummy? It made Becky scream and shout when they explained to her, time and time again, that Angie was not her birth mummy. And this also broke Angie's heart, because she'd raised Becky since she was a baby, and she said that she wished that Becky was hers. 
Eventually, however, these teething issues subsided and Becky came to realise that she was lucky to have so much family. She drew a picture of them all and said that she was lucky because she had a mummy and an Angie and two big brothers and a daddy. As Becky got older, she started going to school. And Darren was sad to see that Becky didn't enjoy school or socialising very much and she only made one friend. It didn't seem to bother Becky too much though. She enjoyed the friendship she had and she was fiercely loyal to her new best mate. By the time she was five, Nathan was spending more time at the house and would often babysit Danny and Becky whilst Darren and Angie went out on a few dates. By this time, Nathan was 16, and Angie was pleased to see how well he was integrating into their family and how much responsibility he took on when looking after his younger step-siblings. Darren also felt like his relationship with Nathan was improving day by day too. Nathan never saw his birth father, and so Darren stepped up and took on the role of fathering this teenage boy. When Darren had been a kid, he'd been in the cadets and, following in his footsteps, Nathan did the same. He joined the cadets and then joined the army reserves after that. Despite the eight-year age gap between them, Danny and Nathan were still getting on incredibly well and would often play pranks on Danny. When Becky got a bit older, she started getting involved too and the three of them would write things on Darren's car like, watch out, blind old fart driving, and then they'd all laugh hysterically about it. They really were one big happy blended family. When Nathan turned 18, he got his first girlfriend. The relationship only lasted a few months, but Nathan became a bit obsessed with her after their breakup and would hang around outside her house. He said that it was because she owed him money, but Darren and Angie felt like it might be more than that. They spoke to him when the girl complained to the police about him, and they told him that what he was doing was essentially stalking. Nathan chalked it up to the fact that he wanted his money back, but Darren wasn't so sure. A few months later, another disturbing incident of sorts occurred. Darren was working on his car in his driveway when Nathan pulled up outside the house in his car. Darren got up and walked over to him, and inside the car he saw a group of young girls, probably around 12 years old, sat inside his car giggling. Darren asked who the hell they were, and Nathan, who was now 19 years old, just shrugged and said they were just some random girls who wanted to go for a drive. Darren told Nathan to take them back to their parents right away. Ooh. At first, Nathan laughed, but then he seemed to realise that Darren was being serious, and he got in the car and left. After this, he refused to talk to Darren or Angie about the girls or what he'd been doing that day. By this time, Becky had started secondary school. Unfortunately, her one friend from primary school had gone to a different school, so she had to start the friend-making mm. process all over again. This was hard, the girls in her year were mean, and she was constantly teased. They teased her about her weight, about her clothes, and she would come home from school and cry to her dad, asking him, why don't people like me, why am I so ugly and fat? And for Darren at this point, he felt completely out of his depth. He said that as a man, he couldn't understand why women link their self-worth to their weight and their appearance. But I think at this point, he was probably starting to feel incredibly out of his depths, raising a young girl going into her teens, because school is a horrible place for teenage girls. And I think for him, he felt like he had to support her. Um, but he just didn't know how because he didn't understand why she was being teased for these things that he didn't think were of any relevance do you know what I mean yeah absolutely and also it's just the it's the start of things isn't it like you say school can be a really difficult place for teenage girls and he's about to enter a whole probably five-year period in her life that actually he's going to feel quite ill-equipped to deal mm -hmm. with you know 
puberty mm. and sex and whatever. So you can imagine that he would probably suddenly be feeling like, oh God, I need some help. And also it's just heartbreaking as a parent. I think I'm saying this like I am a parent. I'm not, <laughs> um, but I can imagine that it would be heartbreaking as a parent seeing your child upset yeah. and being like, uh, yeah, the being the victim to children being horrible because actually it's such a crushing thing for kids to go through at mm-hmm. school and you're relatively powerless as a parent to be honest like there's not a lot I mean I think everyone knows like going to teach and stuff doesn't always help in these Absolutely. situations so yeah I think it'd be so tough for him yeah so and, and it's everything that you just said I think he did feel really un- like ill-equipped and like that's a I think a perfect phrase for how he was feeling he was just feeling totally out of his depth um but he was lucky you know he did have Angie um but ultimately yeah I think things were really starting to take a toll on him. Unfortunately, it got even worse when Becky started skipping meals and she started eating virtually no food. This was, of course, incredibly unhealthy for Becky, not just in terms of her body, but also in terms of her mental health. Darren tried and tried to get Becky to eat, and eventually he managed to convince her to exercise with him and eat more food to fuel her workouts. And for a time, this did seem to work. I think this struggle with weight and appearance is something a lot of girls face growing up. However, I do think it's important to note that Becky was just 11 years old at this point. And to me, that just sounds incredibly young to be, you know, being teased about your weight so much that it sort of sparks this eating disorder. Yeah, that's awful. So things got worse at school. And when Becky was 12, Darren and Angie received a phone call asking them if they would reconsider pulling Becky out of school. Angie asked the school what they were talking about, and the school said that they'd received a request stating that Becky was going to start being homeschooled. Obviously, this was not Angie and Darren's doing, but when they confronted Becky about this, she burst into tears and told them that she had no friends and begged them to take her out of school. Unfortunately, Darren and Angie couldn't afford to homeschool her, and this shattered Becky. Becky started skipping school, and once again she started skipping meals. She got incredibly thin and would often faint. Darren and Angie were so worried about her, but Nathan just laughed at her. He thought his stepsister was just doing it all for attention and felt that his mum and Darren's constant flitting over Becky was pathetic. He showed his disdain towards his stepsister by constantly telling Becky that she was fat and lashed out with spiteful comments every time his mum Angie showed Becky any attention. At this point, he's 23. Just grow up, man. Yeah, that's just horrible, I think. That as a child going through what Becky was, home is her safe place and your family is someone who's meant to not echo the words of kind of the big scary mm-hmm. world. And I can't even imagine how shattering that must have been for her to go home and have the abuse that she faced every day at school continue. And I think it's awful that, yeah, as a, a boy of 23, regardless of what kind of feelings he might have going on, for him not to understand the huge impact like what he was doing was having it's just awful yeah I completely agree with that it's it's dreadful and like you said it's meant to be her safe place and coming home and when Nathan's there um yeah just like reflecting back everything that she was feeling and unfortunately when you're in a such a bad mental place like that you do just listen to all the negative things that are said to you she wouldn't be listening to Angie and Darren's kind of words of comfort and you know telling her that she's not fat and all these different things all she would harbor at that point is the words of Nathan and it's just awful that she had to deal with that like you said at school but then also at home Mm. so unfortunately becky's eating disorder became even worse and she had to be taken to the doctors darren and angie were upset and devastated that becky was so unwell and they tried everything to help her it was even more difficult for darren because social services had to get involved due to the fact that becky had previously been in care becky attended counseling sessions and on some of these sessions angie and darren were allowed to join 
These sessions worked wonders for Becky and she started to really open up. She confided in her counsellor that she felt most confident when she was at home. When asked why she thought that was, Becky said that it was because she felt safe there with Angie and Darren, although she did say that she felt unsafe when she was there alone or when she was there with just her older stepbrother Nathan. The next few years changed Becky completely. This change came after social services and a doctor came to her and told her that she was going to be admitted to a specialist hospital to help her. The realisation that she was going to be taken away from home to stay in a hospital specifically for anorexia treatment sparked a change in her and she started eating frequent meals and, once she'd gained enough weight, she started exercising regularly with her dad. Her confidence grew and she started to push through the social anxiety that had forever smothered her. Mm. When she was in year nine, she took it upon herself to mentor some of the younger students in year seven. If she saw them sitting alone at lunch, she would sit with them and she would sit and talk to younger students who had complained of bullying. She was really trying to channel all the negativity into something positive for these younger students so they wouldn't be how she had been. Unfortunately, Becky had to soon give up this mentor role as she had to move schools to a specialist school designed to help children who had missed a lot of their education due to health problems. This move was good for her, however. She enjoyed her new class and she made some new friends too. Her friends were lovely and her confidence grew and she started seeing a few boys. When she was 16, she started going out with a boy called Luke, and Luke was someone that Darren really approved of. Things started to be looking up, and then ill health struck their family once again when Angie was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis. I won't go into masses of detail about Angie's condition, but she was incredibly weak, she was losing mobility, and she lost the sight in her eyes for a short period of time. Because of this, she had to start using a wheelchair. It was clear that soon she would need a live-in carer, as Darren couldn't look after Angie 24-7 just by himself. He didn't want to ask Becky as she was just settling into her newfound happiness, and he didn't want to ask his son Danny to move back in and help, as, by this time, Danny had moved back in with his and Becky's biological mother, Tanya. Oh, why was that? Um, I think it was everything um, everything that was kind of happening with Becky with regards to her uh, mental health and her eating disorder, I think... There was just so much going on with Angie and Darren constantly worrying about if Becky was okay, really. And I think Danny kind of felt a little bit overwhelmed by it all. Um, And he'd always had like a very soft spot for his mother in a way that Becky didn't really. I think because Becky was so young um, when she kind of when she moved in with Darren, Danny had had that upbringing with her. And so... um, I I read in some places, you know, if Darren was kind of like bad mouthing Tanya or saying something about Tanya, Danny would really like jump to her defense. So I think they just had a much closer relationship. And when everything kind of broke down um, with Becky and what was going on with Becky, I think they just decided that it was probably better for him to move back in with Tanya. Yeah, I suppose they're very different ages. So Mm. yeah, exactly. There's like three or four years between them. So yeah. So because of this and the need for a live-in carer, Darren felt he had no choice but to accept Nathan's girlfriend's invitation of help. This was quite a big issue for Darren, as Shauna, Nathan's girlfriend, hadn't always been a welcome presence in his home. When Nathan had first brought Shauna home, there had been massive controversy because she'd looked about 14 and he was in his mid-twenties. Darren raised his concerns, but Nathan said that Shauna was 19. Darren didn't believe that for a second. He was especially concerned about letting Shauna into the house because of that incident in the past when Nathan had been driving around with a car full of underage teenagers, but also because he knew social services were constantly watching them. He didn't want his stepson bringing an underage girl into the house and doing God knows what with her. 
He felt so strongly about this that he said he wouldn't let Shauna into the house until he'd seen her birth certificate proving she was at least 16. Nathan waited about a year and a half until 2010 and then finally showed up to the house with Shauna and her birth certificate, proving that she had just turned 16. Nathan was a full seven years older than his girlfriend, something that Darren felt concerned about given their young age. Angie, however, welcomed her son's girlfriend with open arms and so did Becky. Bless Becky, but she wanted so badly to be friends with Shauna that she would often buy things for her or give her clothes away to her, despite Shauna being very ungrateful when Becky did this. When Shauna fell pregnant, Becky was very excited to have a little niece or nephew, and when their baby was born, Nathan seemed to grow up a little bit. Darren and Angie were excited to be new grandparents, and soon Nathan and Shauna moved into a council house of their own to raise their new baby. The new baby in their lives made Darren realise the importance of family and he decided that he wanted to marry Angie. He told Becky about his plans and Becky was over the moon with excitement and promised to help Darren plan it all. She picked out the wedding dress and the bridesmaid's dresses and the suits for the men. She even planned the floral arrangements for the church and thanks to Becky, her father and Angie had the most beautiful wedding day with Becky and Shauna as bridesmaids and Nathan and Danny as joint best men. As I mentioned before, Shauna started working as a carer for Angie and this worked well as it meant that she could bring her baby to work and it meant that someone was always on hand to look after Angie when she was having her weaker days, although Shauna wasn't particularly good at her job. On the days when Shauna was looking after Angie, Nathan would usually come by to the house at the end of the day and Becky really hated this. He had fallen back into his menacing ways and would regularly wind her up by jumping out of the shadows and scaring her and sometimes he'd take things one step further and grab her shoulders and scream in her face. He said he was just playing pranks but it wound Becky up and it scared her. On Tuesday the 17th of February 2015, Becky was on her half-term break from school and so she would usually stay up late and sleep in late. That night at around 10pm she asked Darren to cook her a pizza before he went to bed. He delivered it to her bedroom and then he went to sleep. At 3am he woke up to the sound of Becky's TV still on. Realising that she must have fallen asleep watching it, he snuck into her room to turn it off. Becky was curled up on her bed fast asleep, wearing one of her favourite fleecy onesies. Darren smiled at his sleeping daughter, turned off her TV and then closed her door on the way out. This was the last time he ever saw his daughter. What? What do you mean, what? (laughs) Well, I'm just shocked, aren't I? I was getting into this story. We're 26 minutes in and no crime's taken place. I kind of forgot that's what we were expecting. Oh, okay. So the next day, Darren went to work and he came home and Angie told him that Becky had gone to her friend's house for a sleepover. This didn't bother Darren at all. She'd always had such a hard time with friends growing up and he was so pleased that she now had such lovely friends. By the next evening, on Thursday the 19th of February... Darren was worried that he'd still not seen Becky. It was Danny's birthday and it was unlike Becky to not have shown up for it. Angie said that she had actually seen Becky that morning at around 8.30am. She'd come back from her friend's house early and woken Angie up to let her in as her key wasn't working properly. Angie said that she'd gone out that morning to her hospital appointment and when she'd gotten home she couldn't work out if Becky had been in the house or not. Nathan and Shauna had been over and they said that they'd heard Becky run down the stairs and slam the front door on her way out and so they assumed she'd gone out. Darren wondered if maybe she was with her boyfriend Luke but worry started to set in properly when he swung by the house looking for her too. That night, when Becky still hadn't come home, they went to bed thinking that she must have just been out at a friend's house. 
It was weird that Becky hadn't responded to any of their texts, but they settled their nerves by reminding themselves that Angie had seen Becky that morning, and so she couldn't have gone too far. The next day, Darren went to work, but at around 2.30pm, he got a call from Angie, who was really worried by this point. She said that she'd rung around all of Becky's friends and her boyfriend Luke, and none of them had seen Becky since the morning before, around the same time Angie had seen her. Darren raced home from work, and on the way he called his son Danny and the kid's biological mother Tanya, but neither of them had seen or spoken to Becky either. He got home, and there, he, Angie, Nathan, Shauna, and all of Becky's friends listed out when the last time they'd seen Becky was. They realised that one friend had seen her leave his house that Thursday morning, then Angie had seen her when she let her into the house, then Shauna had heard her run out of the house later on that morning. So, they established that Becky must have left the house somewhere between 11.15 in the morning and 12.45 that afternoon. Her phone was going through to voicemail and Darren, seriously worried at this point, asked one of Becky's friends to come up to her bedroom to see if anything was missing. The friend noticed that Becky's blue puffer jacket was gone, as was her phone, her laptop, her fleecy onesie and a jumper. Nothing else, however, including her makeup and her bag, were missing. The most confusing thing about all of this was that her laptop had gone, as she'd never taken her laptop out of the house before now. Darren grabbed his phone and called the police. He reported his daughter missing. He explained that she was particularly vulnerable, as she found it hard to read people. Whilst Darren waited for the police to send someone round to take the statement, he dropped Becky's friends back at their own houses. When he got back, he asked Nathan to help him put something on Facebook to get the word out about Becky. Nathan sat at the computer and posted a photo of Becky with the caption, Please share. Missing 16-year-old girl. Please private message if you have seen her or know anything. Shortly after this was posted, the police arrived at the house and the family rehashed everything they'd worked out in relation to the last known whereabouts of Becky. The police asked Shauna if she'd actually seen Becky leave the house, but she said no, she'd just heard Becky's music stop, and then feet on the stairs, and then the front door slam. That night, Darren's imagination ran wild, wondering if Becky had been kidnapped by a gang or a group of men, and his mind was running wild imagining the worst things possible that might be happening to her. Unable to sleep, he posted another Facebook post, pleading with anyone who knew any information to come forward. He finished the post saying, I'm really scared now, I want her home. Oh, God. On Saturday the 21st, two family liaison officers from the police went to their house to speak to the family again and take DNA swabs from Becky's toothbrush and her hairbrush. To Darren's slight annoyance, they started searching Becky's room. He wanted to let them do their jobs, but he was frustrated as they knew for certain that Becky had left the house that Thursday because Shauna had heard her go, and he felt that they should be putting their efforts into searching outside the house. The next few days moved slowly. Darren comforted himself by posting status after status on Facebook, pleading for help. He even wrote posts directly to Becky, saying, Bex, if you can see this, please come home. We're heartbroken. We need you in our lives. You won't be told off and you can make as much mess as you want. I won't say a word, I promise. And this genuinely, reading that, it really, really broke my heart because I think that sentence there is like a direct reference to something else I read where he'd said to Angie something along the lines of like if Becky comes home I'll never ever tell her off again for leaving her belongings everywhere and it's just so sad Mm, heartbreaking he just must have he must just be sat there wishing like any negative or 
bad conversation they'd ever had like that's probably all you recount in your head and just think god i'll do nothing of the night cherish you yeah if you come back and yeah, yeah you can't really imagine especially after everything they've been through mm-hmm. no exactly so similarly to the facebook posts that he kept putting up darren was also asked to hold a press conference to plead for becky to return During the press conference, he broke down in tears and was unable to continue speaking. So Tanya's mum, Pat, finished it off. She said, Hiya Bex, it's Nan. You can see your dad is a broken man. Please, if you don't want to come home yet, just let someone else ring or text us. If you're a bit worried about coming back because of all this hullabaloo, come and stay with me for a few days. You know I have a spare room. You're so loved and I don't think you believe it, but you really are. The family flipped between the idea that she had been taken and the idea that her mental health had gotten the better of her and that she'd run away. Nothing happened for days. Darren did interview after interview on the telly, on the radio, to newspapers, and all the while he continued to post on Facebook. One particular post sparked a lot of negative attention, in which he wrote that he had been Becky's time of the month, and he pleaded with any wives, mothers or girlfriends who had washed any blood out of the sheets of their boyfriends or sons to please contact the police. The media ran this story with headlines like Rebecca Watts missing, dad posts disturbing Facebook message urging women to look for daughter's blood on partner's underwear and dad of missing Becky wants men's underwear checked for blood. I mean, piss off. Do you know what I mean? I I, I cannot believe how much the media kind of sensationalised stories like that. Can you imagine what he must have felt like? He genuinely felt kind of this agonising grip of despair and frustration. And to him, you can imagine that that post made perfect sense. Do you know what I mean? Well, yeah, but also he's, he's like he's a desperate man just wanting to get his daughter back or know where she might be. And he probably just doesn't care, do you know what I mean? Like he thinks, so what if you think it's strange? If if this produces a single lead as to where my daughter is, mm-hmm. I don't care. Like I think that's just a parent fighting for, yeah, for their child. Because he'll be so conscious that like with every day it's getting less likely they'll find her, etc. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, So eventually Angie and Darren were moved out of their house and they were moved into a hotel whilst the police forensically searched their home. This lasted a few days and after this, Darren and Angie were called in for police interviews. The police interviewed Darren for hours, asking question after question about their family setup and who Becky had contact with inside the family. Eventually he lost his call and told them that his family had nothing to do with Becky's disappearance. He told them that they didn't know any more than what they'd already told them and he asked them to stop focusing on his family and go out and look for Becky. He did say afterwards that he wasn't proud of his outburst but he felt like his family had suffered enough without being made to feel like criminals. On Saturday the 28th of February, Shauna and Nathan were taken to the police station for questioning over Becky's disappearance. This didn't faze Darren. He knew that the police had to follow up every lead they had. However... This bubble of blissful ignorance burst on the 3rd of March 2015 when Nathan and Shauna were both arrested. I knew it would have been Nathan. Yeah, he's a prick. So, the police arrived at the hotel room where Darren and Angie were staying and solemnly explained the situation to them. Darren and Angie were confused and incredibly angry and they thought the police had made a huge mistake. The police silenced their questions and asked them to sit down. Then... They revealed that the search for Becky had escalated and that the investigation was now a murder inquiry. They said, We discovered body parts at an address in Barton Hill last night. I'm so sorry, Darren. He then went on to explain that they had identified that the body was Becky by using the DNA sample they'd taken from her toothbrush. 
the police explained that parts of Becky's body had been found at a house at Number 9 Barton Court in the Barton Hill area of Bristol. The man who lived there was called Carl Demetrius, and he was a friend of Nathan's. Darren asked what evidence they had that Nathan was involved, and the police told him that blood had been found on the outside of Becky's doorframe, and so had Nathan's fingerprints. When Nathan was arrested, he'd told the police where to find Becky's body, and he'd also admitted being responsible for her death. Oh my god. Yeah, I know. I didn't expect him to be the kind of person who would admit to it. Mm. We'll kind of go on to see why he does. Um, but the police officer then explained to Darren and Angie that Shauna had been charged with perverting the course of justice and Nathan had been charged with Becky's murder. I'm sure you don't need me to tell you that Darren and Angie were utterly devastated, confused and in total shock. A few days later, they found out that Becky's cause of death had been suffocation and that four other individuals had been arrested in connection with her murder. Both Darren and Angie were taken in to answer more questions over and over again. It was an incredibly hard time for Darren and Angie because essentially Angie's son had killed Darren's daughter. Despite this, the couple stood by each other and helped each other through their shared pain, although this was of course gruelling and hard. One day, Angie asked Darren if he was going to leave her because of her son and this broke Darren's heart and he said that he'd never even considered it. It's weird, isn't it? Because when you're listening to it, that is kind of where your mind goes. Like, mm. you, it does suddenly seem like there's two sides here, even though, like you say, actually, they're both grieving, they're both going through a trauma. I'd, yeah, I don't know. You do just suddenly think that it's back to being, like, Angie's son and Darren's daughter instead of, you know, five minutes ago, this was one big family. Mm. No, I completely agree. And I think a lot of people did feel that way. I mean, interviews that have happened since this case... You know, they're always asked by people, why did they stay together and how could they stay together? And Darren has always said that he never, ever once even considered it being any issue of Angie's. And I don't go into explain this in this episode, but I mean, in Darren's book, he does say, you know, there were times when he would absolutely lose it and he would scream at Angie and he would say things like, you know, like you created a monster and like, how could your son have done this? Like, like he killed my daughter and Angie would always respond with like she was my daughter too you know she'd yeah. raised her from from a baby and so it did really break both of them but for Angie it was a massive conflict I think because she obviously had the pain of losing Becky who who was you know like like I just said like her daughter but also that her son had been the one to do it I think you know her pain must have been immense just so big yeah absolutely and the shame and guilt even though it's you know she personally hasn't done anything will be yeah huge absolutely um so the whole of bristol came together for angie and darren and the rest of their family they left cards and flowers and the bristol rovers football team paid a tribute to becky before one of their games and a balloon release memorial for her in st george's park was arranged becky was soon known around the area as bristol's angel and this was a name that Darren loved. On the 26th of March 2015, Nathan and Shauna appeared at Bristol Crown Court for their preliminary hearing. Nathan was charged with murder, and Shauna was initially charged with perverting the cause of justice, but in June, this charge was changed to murder. Four other individuals were also charged at this hearing for assisting an offender. These individuals were Carl Demetrius, his brother Donovan Demetrius, Jadine Parsons and James Ireland. On the 6th of October 2015, the trial began. This was a nerve-wracking time for Darren and Angie as they hadn't seen Nathan since the day he'd been charged and they still had no idea under what circumstances Becky had been killed. 
They knew her cause of death had been strangulation, but they didn't know any more than that or what had caused Nathan to do this to his little sister. At the trial, the four defendants were Nathan, Shauna, Donovan Demetrius and James Arland. The other two defendants I mentioned earlier, Donovan's brother Carl and his girlfriend Jadine Parsons, had already pleaded guilty to assisting Nathan by storing Becky's body in their shed, although they claimed they hadn't known what was in the bags. I was going to now read you part of the court transcript, but honestly it's quite wordy and probably won't give enough detail. So instead I'll just explain kind of what was eventually revealed and you know what all came together at the trial and thereafter. So it came out that Nathan had an unhealthy sexual obsession with teenage girls and this obsession was shared with Shauna. What? I don't particularly... Oh, do I buy that? I don't know. Or do I think she was coerced? If I go on to explain this, maybe then we can discuss it. Yeah, sorry. No, that's no, no, that's fine. I wasn't like chastising you. <laughs> um, so yeah, if we think back to earlier in this episode, um, we can kind of obviously see it from Nathan having this obsession. You know, the fact that when he was eighteen to nineteen, he was driving around girls as young as twelve, and when he was in his mid twenties, he started dating Shauna before she was even of a legal age. And we can kind of see that this obsession had started long before anyone really had ever realised. And at the trial, it was revealed that the couple together had joked about kidnapping underage girls for months leading up to Becky's murder. They sent each other text message after text message, and these were vile. They said things such as, just went into Costcutter and saw a pretty petite girl, almost knocked her out to bring her home, lol. To which Nathan replied, don't you almost me, now do it, bitch. Other text messages also spoke about kidnapping schoolgirls from school. Adding to this, evidence was found on Nathan's computer that he had been watching pornographic videos of teenage girls having forceful sex, and the prosecution said that the videos were so bad they were borderline illegal. One of Becky's friends testified that Nathan had repeatedly told Becky that he was going to kill her in the years leading up to her murder. He would then go on to describe his plan in graphic detail to Becky. She said that Becky had been scared of her older brother, And this was not something that Darren had known at all, as Becky had never told him. But I guess looking back, there were small signs. If you can remember, Becky had told her counsellor, treating her for her anorexia, that she was scared to be around Nathan or be in the house with him alone. And that isn't at all me blaming Darren, by the way. I mean, I think he definitely wasn't to know at all because she hadn't told him. Um, But I'm just sort of drawing everyone's attention to these links there. So on the day that Becky had been murdered, Shauna and Nathan had turned up to the house with a kidnap kit and were armed with supplies such as two stun guns, handcuffs and face coverings. These stun guns had been ordered by Shauna in January 2015, a month before Becky had been murdered. The pair entered the house and Nathan put a mask over his face and let himself into Becky's room. He said that what happened next had been an accident... He said he had planned to kidnap her as a prank and to, quote, scare her and teach her a lesson because she was selfish and treated my mother badly. However, he said that when he grabbed her, she started fighting back, something that was evidenced in her autopsy as she had bruising on her knuckles. He said during the commotion, his mask had slipped. He said when he realised that Becky had seen his identity, he panicked and strangled her. After she had died, the pathologist said that Becky received 15 stab wounds to her body, a slash across her stomach and a long cut down her chest, as well as wounds to her shoulders. All 19 wounds inflicted on Becky had been done post-mortem. Nathan then packed a bag with Becky's phone, laptop, some clothing and some bedding into his car. 
He then put Becky's body in a bag and put that in the boot of his car too. The car then sat on the driveway for the rest of the day. Darren had walked directly past the car when he'd gotten in from work that afternoon and Becky's body had been in the boot. Oh my God. CCTV footage then showed Shauna and Nathan driving back to their home at around 7pm and when they got in, they ordered a Chinese takeaway and sat and watched some TV. During this time, Shauna had been YouTubing parodies of the Frozen song Do You Want to Build a Snowman? but instead the lyrics had been changed to Do You Want to Hide a Body? The next day, Nathan went to B&Q where he bought a circular power saw, gloves, a face mask and some goggles. The store assistant testified that she remembered him buying these things because he'd queried the price of the saw, thinking that it was cheaper. She told him that the price he was quoting was for the tool next to the power saw he wanted. Nathan then reportedly told her that it was fine and that he'd pay the higher price because he needed the saw that day. He also went to another store and bought two bottles of drain cleaner, and then Nathan and Shauna were seen on the CCTV of another shop where they bought black bags, plastic sacks, rubber gloves and three rolls of cling film. Back at the house he lived in with Shauna and his toddler, Nathan dismembered Becky's body in the bath using the circular saw he'd just bought, a kitchen knife and a screwdriver. How can he do this? Like, this is his sister. Mm -hmm. It's just mind-blowing, isn't it, that he's suddenly been a relatively normal, and I do use that phrase loosely because... Mm. He's had the, you know, warning signs of a complete weirdo, definitely. But still, you know, he's got a young child. He's been like a functioning member of society. Mm-hmm. And then suddenly he's just completely capable of soaring up his younger sister in his bath. Oh, no, I just find it baffling. I, I, It's disgusting, isn't it? Because not only, yeah, like you said, it's not just a random body. Or do you know what I mean? Like, don't even think I could do that to an animal. Like, I just find no. it absolutely, yeah, completely crazy that he's completely, yeah, seemingly flipped and this whole entire different side of his personality has come out. And to not be like a quivering wreck as well, mm. like to have gone home and got a Chinese oh God, and know, to yeah. gone to shops, you know, gone to five different shops, really obviously quite coherently thinking, okay, what things do I need in order to get this done? Mm-hmm. You know, he's not running somewhere, done a panic buy, been yeah. a twitchy mess. Like, it's just amazing me how seemingly calm and collected he is about the whole thing. But just, I think, as well, kind of on that, just the fact that he's actually dismembering her body. You know, if you say that you accidentally killed someone, if, if I accidentally killed someone, I mean, I'd call the police, but, you know, if I was trying to get away with it, I would never, ever think to cut up the body at all. No, just that go would and never dump it somewhere and flee. Yeah, no, exactly. And that's what I just think is just so mind-blowing. Mm. So... Yeah, in the bath, he cut her body into eight pieces and then he individually wrapped each part up in cling film, thick plastic bags, Asda carrier bags and three different types of tape. Her torso was wrapped in two bath mats, a shower curtain and more plastic bags. And these were then all put into a large plastic box, two suitcases and a rucksack. So I know these details are horrific, but there is a reason that I'm telling you them. And that is because this method of wrapping up her body so tightly, as well as the added salt and cat litter that they'd added to Becky's body for some reason, had had the effect of preserving her body. And that is how the pathologist was able to accurately determine Becky's cause of death. Very bizarre that they put salt and cat litter in it, like in, in the wrap, I think. Very odd. I think that would be to try and stop it, the smell, though, wouldn't it? Yeah, yeah, I think that too. That's exactly what I thought when I when I read that, yeah. 
So then Nathan decided to move Becky's body off his property. And so he phoned his friends, Carl Demetrius, who in turn called James Arland. Nathan asked them to help him move some packages and store them for him, although he didn't tell them what was in the packets. It was clear, though, that the activity was illegal, as he offered to pay them £10,000 to help and not ask any questions. Carl Demetrius wasn't at the trial as he'd already pled guilty to assisting an offender, but he'd maintained that he thought Nathan was just hiding stolen goods. During the two days James and Donovan spent on the stand during the trial, James Arland denied knowing what had been in the suitcases and bags that they'd helped Nathan move and store, and Donovan Demetrius denied being involved at all. He said that his only connection to the case was that he'd simply been staying at his brother's house at the time his brother Carl had decided to help Nathan. On the stand, Nathan stuck by his story that he had killed Becky by accident and that he had just panicked. He said that he had never planned to murder Becky and that it had just been manslaughter. He and Shauna said that Shauna had no idea what was happening and that at the time of Becky's death, she had been outside smoking a cigarette. When questioned why he had stabbed Becky's body after her death, he said that he had seen it on CSI and that it was to drain the fluids from her body. He said that Shauna had no idea that he'd cut up Becky's body and wrapped it up and that it was a coincidence that she'd been seen on CCTV buying the cling film and the black bags with him. These items were apparently unrelated to the crime. Shauna also testified to this and said that she was disgusted by Nathan's behaviour and couldn't believe he'd done such a thing. She denied all knowledge of the crime, even denying that she'd had anything to do with the supposed fake kidnap plot. Neither Shauna or Nathan could explain why Shauna's DNA was found on a mask hidden with Becky's body. In a police interview earlier on before the trial had begun, Shauna even indignantly said to the police that they couldn't charge her with anything because she, quote, hadn't touched anything. I mean... All right, suspicious Shauna. That's not very good phrasing, is it? You wouldn't say, I didn't touch anything. Surely you'd say I wasn't there. Yeah, and she's still party to this crime, I think. Like, she's either outside having a cigarette or she was inside and heard Becky slam the door. Like, everything else aside, she's a liar. And the fact that she's lying just makes me think she absolutely 100% knew what Nathan had done and was getting up to. Like, I just, yeah... The whole, the whole thing is just so, it's such a stupid lie though, because what, what he's saying, right, is that he managed to put on his mask, go upstairs, knock on Becky's door, go into Becky's room, pretend to kidnap her, get scared, strangle her, and then for some reason stab her 15 to 19 times to release the fluid from her body. And then he managed to pack up all of her belongings, pack her up, put her in the car. And that entire time, Shauna was outside having a cigarette. That's just ridiculous. There's no way that Shauna just had no idea this was happening. But on top of that, if we then think, okay, fine. So she was outside having a cigarette for the entire time that was happening. Say that was true. Then what? When, When he's dismembering Becky's body in their shared bathroom with a power saw... And she's just like... She's having another cigarette. <laughs> it's just ridiculous. And she said in police interviews, she was like, oh, oh, Nathan told me that the toilet was broken and I thought he was just fixing it. Are you stupid? Yeah, they are. Like, <laughs> I think a lot of the time, because of, um, like, crime series and TV, we like to think of murderers and criminals as, like, geniuses and masterminds. Mm. But the same way as, you know, they probably have the same stats as the general population. Like that most people aren't actually completely geniusly equipped to create lies in a fantasy world in which they don't get caught. It's why most people only kill once, because they do get caught, because they are a bit stupid. Mm. Like, 
so I think it sounds ridiculous to us when we're hearing it, but actually in the moment, these are just two people who, whether they feel bad or not, are slightly panicked and coming out with absolute rubbish mm. that is just completely implausible. I mean, it's not hard to imagine why they both fessed up so quickly when left alone with such terrible, terrible lies. Yeah, <laughs> agreed. Um, so at the trial, Darren Goolsworthy gave a victim impact statement and he said... My name is Darren Goolsworthy, and I am the father of Rebecca Watts, now known as Bristol's Angel. He then went on to say, The heartless, cold and calculating perpetrators of this despicable act of evil can never be forgotten or forgiven. These family members sat in our home, knowing what they had done, and watched my very public descent into madness and despair. They said nothing, but continued to pretend to help us, showing no emotion at all. Mm. Finally, after seven weeks... On the 11th of November 2015, the trial came to an end. The jury retired at 10.30 to discuss all the evidence they'd seen, and by 2pm they'd reached a verdict. On the first charge of conspiracy to kidnap, both Nathan and Shauna were found guilty. This was excellent news for the family because it meant that the jury hadn't believed Shauna when she'd said that she'd been totally innocent of everything. In relation to the second charge of the murder of Becky Watts, the jury found Nathan Matthews guilty. They found Shauna Hoare not guilty of Becky's murder, but did find her guilty of the lesser charge of manslaughter. Shauna was also found guilty of perverting the cause of justice, preventing a lawful burial, and possession of a stun gun. These charges were ones that Nathan had already pleaded guilty to. James Arland and Donovan Demetrius were both found not guilty of assisting an offender. Mr Justice Dingemans, the judge on this case, started the sentencing hearing by saying that Nathan Matthews was a vile character for having deceived his family in the way he had after he had murdered Becky. He said that it was clear that Nathan and Shauna were still being deceitful about the day they'd killed Becky and their motives and what had really happened. He said that he did feel the kidnapping plot was sexually motivated and although that was highly disturbing, he felt that Nathan Matthews' crimes did not warrant a full life term with no opportunity for parole. He instead gave Nathan a mandatory life sentence with a minimum prison term of 33 years. This meant that 28-year-old Nathan would be 61 by the time he might be considered for release. Shauna was sentenced to 17 years, and the judge noted he felt her involvement in the crimes was as a direct influence of her relationship with Nathan. Mm. Whilst Nathan sobbed hysterically when he was sentenced, Shauna showed no emotion at all. Yes, Mm. And then, in an absolute wild twist... Mr. Justice Dingemans then choked on his own tears as he paid a public tribute to Becky's families for the dignified way in which they'd conducted themselves throughout the trial. Carl Demetrius, who had pled guilty to assisting an offender, received a two-year sentence, and his girlfriend, Jadine Parsons, who had also pled guilty to the same charge, received a 16-month sentence. The judge noted that it was clear that the pair had not known that Becky's body had been in the packages they'd moved and stored for Nathan Matthews, but being promised £10,000 to store them would have indicated to them that the contents was illegal and they took a risk that didn't pay off. Nathan and Shauna both attempted to appeal the length of their sentences, but both their appeals were denied. After the trial, some of the jury members wanted to speak to Darren and Angie to pass on their condolences, and when Darren met them, he gave all of them a hug. Later, one juror said that the trial had a disturbing effect on her life and she had to have counselling afterwards. She said that during the trial she didn't eat or sleep because of how harrowing the entire ordeal was. 
The public pulled together and raised over £11,000 for Becky's funeral and the family got her the headstone that they wanted which had blue marble flecks on it and a small figurine of a child hugging a woman around her neck in the same way Becky had always hugged Angie. Mm. Darren says that when he goes walking he talks to Becky and this has helped him a lot mentally. He says he'll have chats with her and tell her about his day and tells her how much he misses her. So as I kind of alluded to earlier, Angie and Darren are still together. And despite people not understanding how Darren could still love Angie when it was her son that had killed his daughter, he said he would never ever blame her for what her son had done. So earlier, right at the top, Sal, you kind of mentioned that maybe you weren't convinced that Shauna had kind of this uh, kind of sexual tendency in the same way that Nathan did for younger girls. And obviously, um, the judge also kind of mentioned that and you kind of made a little noise then when I said that. So, um, yeah, I don't know, kind of putting you on the spot, but did you have anything that you wanted to say on that? (laughs) Yeah, I think it's really hard because when you get to the point where something like this happens, so she has been, yeah, an accessory to a murder however involved she was she knew about it she concealed it and I think in the really heartbreaking words of Becky's dad you know she watched his public descent into madness which Mm. I just think's heartbreaking and she stayed silent so I think when you get to that point it's really it's quite hard to think of her as anything other than a monster as just a you know a really bad person and you think god what the chance of these two awful people meeting and encouraging each other's behavior and the same you know Myra and Ian Mm -hmm. you know that sort of thing but then actually when you think back to the start of this story how shocked I was you know she was 14 I'm not justifying what she did at all here but I just think it is a really hard one to understand because actually she was groomed by him Mm -hmm. so is she really would she have ever had these feelings organically on her own or actually was the situation under which they met he normalized their very by their very relationship existing for her normalized that age gap and younger girls mm. if that makes sense and yeah, yeah. You know, he would have had to have done that a little bit in order just to get her to be with him and once you've kind of got through that barrier and they probably never really lost the dynamic of him being like an older boyfriend and all of that I think it is very easy to have a huge sway on people mm-hmm. and that's not to say that she didn't then develop her own thrill of it but I think 100% you do have to question actually yeah what bearing did that have the fact that there was this big age gap and you know he she was clearly much more vulnerable both mm-hmm. emotionally and age-wise and physically and whatever um in contrast to Nathan so I just do think that's interesting and maybe it's something we can chat about a bit on Patreon or something because there's a lot of a lot of couples actually who kill or maybe not both kill but will cover up one another's crimes etc so and I do think there's often there is a common theme of like a power dynamic or something um so yeah I just I do find it interesting because yeah the start of that story you'd have been feeling sorry for her wouldn't you and then at this point now you're just thinking of her as a monster but yeah I just find it interesting what happened in between that those two periods of time Yeah, and I completely actually agree with that. And I hadn't thought of it in that way before, especially I found it very interesting what you just said about their relationship kind of normalizing um, the the age gap. And maybe that did have a massive part in, yeah, why she then went on to, you know, send the text messages that she did and ultimately do what she did to Becky. Um, But yeah, I totally agree. We can talk about it more and I'll wind down afterwards. Um, But yeah, that was, yeah, that's really, really interesting and definitely something to think about. 
I've got to say that researching this case did honestly break my heart. And that's really why I decided to do such an intense deep dive into Becky's very short life because I wanted to share it all with you. And I know kind of sat, you're like, oh, we're 26 minutes in and nothing's happened. But I just really wanted everyone really to hear and feel kind of the struggles that she'd faced and how she, you know, finally landed on her feet when her life was then so cruelly and senselessly taken away from her. Um, It's gut-wrenching and just completely, utterly senseless. But if you want to find out more about Becky's life and her family and the trial, um, then please consider buying Darren Goldsworthy's book. It's called The Evil Within, although I think some older copies um, you might find are called Becky. It's really well written, actually, and it gives a really, really deep insight into the case, even deeper than the one that you've heard today, because, I mean, this episode is already over an hour long. And, um, yeah, I had to cut lots out. So buying the book, you know, it will give you a deeper insight into that, but it also supports their family, so please consider it. Yeah, I definitely will be buying that. Mm -hmm. So, sorry for the emotional ride, team. Uh, If you're feeling super miserable now like I am, then you can head over to our Patreon for some light-hearted relief giggles probably more bubbles if i have my way and just an all-round palate cleanser after this very sad episode um although i imagine you know we will still discuss this case a bit in that episode because there was so much can include here and i really want to pick your brains on what you just said so <laughs> so head over to patreon to catch up on that thank you everyone for listening um thank you for bearing with us whilst we took a very short break and please join us next week for another episode love you bye bye <laughs>